Support for this podcast comes from you and Yankwich & Associates, since 1997 working to provide expert, responsive service in intellectual property law to biotech, biopharmaceutical, and biochemical companies worldwide. More information at yankwich.com. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When I was a kid, one of my favorite places to eat was called Yangtze River. There were very few restaurants anywhere near our house, but I loved Yangtze River. I always got chicken teriyaki, which came on a stick, um, and something that I think was called Lake Tung Ting Shrimp, which had shrimp and broccoli and egg whites and baby corn. Before I was born, though, Chinese food had already started to change and diversify in the U.S., in the 60s, Cecilia Chang opened an upscale restaurant called The Mandarin in San Francisco, which had instructions on the menu for how to eat Chinese food. The Mandarin is one of 10 restaurants that historian Paul Friedman argues changed America. They changed what we eat, our culture, our habits. They also changed how we spend our paychecks. In 2015, Americans spent more on restaurants and bars than they did on groceries. Friedman is a professor of history at Yale and author of 10 Restaurants That Changed America. Paul, welcome. Thank you, Kara. Glad to be here. So I, I said where I remember going out to eat in the beginning. Where do you first remember going out to eat? The first Chinese restaurant I remember was called the Shanghai, but we very quickly switched to one called the Tianjin in New York City <laughs> up uh, on 125th Street. And I have the same kind of affectionate memories. The food seemed marvelous. We always ordered the same thing, lobster Cantonese, for example, hmm. beef with snow peas. Hmm. And I have never been able to quite reproduce the feeling that evoked. Right, right. I mean, it seems like a time when I'm sure the food was a lot less... Chinese, shall we say, than, the, than some of the Chinese food that you can get now. Um, but it was like its own sort of weird hybrid American-Chinese creation. It was wonderful. And I, I get the same reaction from lots of people talking about the book, so that one of the restaurants in this book is Howard Johnson's. Mm -hmm. Another is a chain that was popular in the Northeast called Shrafts. And people their eyes will, you know, start to tear with nostalgia talking <laughs> about these places. So you talk um, in 10 Restaurants That Changed America about the first real modern restaurant being a place called Delmonico's in New York, which is still there. You can, you can go. But I want to talk first about the place that you just mentioned, a little less fancy, Howard Johnson's. I think a lot of people remember it. I remember it. Uh, some people just remember it as a hotel but talk about how Howard Johnson's revolutionized eating in America in kind of this uh, standardized way. It was a place that is remembered with nostalgia, but remembered for rather bland food. In fact, it was quite innovative in its food as well as in its marketing. Howard Deering Johnson uh, was an entrepreneur who developed a kind of ice cream that was richer than the standard ice cream. So he began as an ice cream stand owner in the uh, period just after the First World War. But he established restaurants along the roadsides of the growing highways of an automobile-infatuated America. Mm. This was not the first of such restaurants, but most of those restaurants were 
kind of unpleasant truck stop, hash house kind of places. They didn't feel they had to offer you very good food because you weren't going to be coming back anyway. Howard Johnson's developed a wholesome, hygienic, predictable, family-friendly image, all of which we kind of take for granted, but that actually had to be invented at a certain Mm. time, the certain time being the 1920s. And the Depression, far from killing that, actually was good to Howard Johnson's. People continued to drive for pleasure. They took their kids. And that was the era, the 30s, when Howard Johnson started to dominate the highways. When it seems like, as you say, it's a car restaurant. I mean, restaurants in general before that, I would guess, would be like in the center of cities where populations are, where people are going to be going by and coming in. But this was meant for for a different kind of technology and a different group of people. Yeah. So you can't have fast food without Howard Johnson's as the model, even though they had a fairly extensive menu. But the standardization that you were talking about, the predictability, they had a certain look. They had an orange roof with a sort of blue design and after the Second World War, a very distinctive kind of modernist shape. The purpose of that was so that you could see it ahead in time to pull over. In the 1920s, other restaurants would have billboards. Howard Deering Johnson thought that was tacky. (laughs) In order then to alert you, you had to have a distinctive look. And, of course, the fact that you had a distinctive look and a distinctive product or set of products meant that people knew what to expect. Now, in our age, we want originality. We want artisanal food. We want creative stuff. But until relatively recently, people wanted to know what they were going to get. They loved predictability. They knew they would get the fried clam strips or the uh, ice cream or the they served frankfurters in a kind of triangular bun that had butter on it. It's very distinctive, but also eminently predictable. But, you know, I would argue we still really like predictability. I mean, that is a lot of the appeal of everything from McDonald's to, you know, Sweet Green, which is a salad chain. I mean, it is the same from one store to another store to another store. And I think, yes, people, I mean, I agree, people do like novelty, but I think people also like knowing that Applebee's is Applebee's and like you can go in there and, you know, get something that you know about. You can get the fajitas. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. That. People yes. want a combination of predictability and creativity. So a place like Sweet Greens or Chipotle that produces a semi-custom-made product, even if you order the same thing every time, then you get the best of both worlds. So that's kind of the magical place now. But for the period in which Howard Johnson's flourished, just like for the period in which McDonald's ruled the roadways, uh, a more absolute kind of predictability hold the personal attention, hold the creativity. There are some, you know, Burger King advertised on the basis of have it your way, which is a little bit of a nod to creativity. But of course, nobody's really fooled that this was, uh, you know, an individually produced, uh, lovingly curated product. I want to talk about one more kind of standardized restaurant that kind of goes to, again, how restaurants can change culture and sort of work with culture. And that restaurant was one I've I've never been to. I've sort of vaguely heard of it, Schraff's. 
But it was very special for how it tried to appeal to women. Tell me, like, why that was so special at the time that that Schraffs was a big deal. Schraffs was founded in 1900, and actually, like Howard Johnson's, it was originally an ice cream business. When it was established, it's not as if women couldn't go to restaurants. Women were welcomed at restaurants right from the start, right from the day Delmonico's opened. But they were welcomed in the company of men. So early 19th century accounts of fancy dinners go on and on about the beautiful clothes and jewels that the women wore. The problem, quote problem, was if uh, women showed up alone or in the company of other women, and particularly the perceived problem was distinguishing respectable women from unrespectable women. Hmm. But men could go alone, right? To uh, men could go alone, and men could go with either respectable women or not respectable okay. women. <laughs> okay. So the priority for the restaurant owners and presumably for their male customers was to make sure that these two categories of women didn't cross paths. Hmm. And the solution was generally to prohibit women who were unaccompanied by men. Hmm. By the time Schrafts opened, there were places for women, tea rooms and even department store restaurants, the early examples of that. What was different was that Schrafts tried to prepare food that women liked, identified food that women preferred. And that was a combination of what was called dainty at the time. We might call it light food Mm. as the main courses and then elaborate desserts. And so the notion was that women would have a salad, chicken salad, (laughs) or at the time cottage cheese was thought of as a light food or chicken a la king or something else with a cream sauce or cream sauce and pastry shell as their main course, and then splurge on a sundae or a banana split for dessert. And I am far from saying that this is really what women's taste consistently is. I was going to ask you, where did, did they get this idea that this is what women want from women? Or, I mean, I don't know, maybe they surveyed women or they just, I don't know, where did that come from? They were a successful business, and this is something that, a model that is not unknown today. All, all I can tell you by way of first-person testimony is that my grandmother took me to Schrafts often, my brother and I, and my mother wouldn't go to Schrafts because my mother was a professional woman, my mother had a PhD, my mother had a job. This was not a place for serious women like her. Really? My grandmother, my grandmother loved shopping. My grandmother loved watching soap operas on TV. And... When she went to Schrafts, she would order cottage cheese and fruit as her main course and then uh, I think either a banana split or a chocolate sundae. I'm not Hmm. quite sure if I remember which as um, the follow-up, as the reward. And was there that kind of – is what your mother said about not wanting to go to Schrafts, was there that kind of class or like professional split where – some women went to Shrafts, but other women thought that was like beneath them or it was, I don't know, too idle or something for them to go to. Too idle mm. and too bourgeois. So Shrafts was killed by some of the same forces that undermined Howard Johnson's in the late 70s and mm. in the 1980s, fast food and things like that. But uh, what really killed it was that they were too successful with their image of a certain kind of ladylike customer who 
was not the model that the women's liberation movement mm-hmm. or the professionalization of women's work lives, that was not the image that women wanted. Right. They tried to appeal to men. Uh, they had some pathetic ads not long before they closed showing uh, women in miniskirts and under the legend, look at the ladies who now eat at Schraft's. But uh, that that didn't succeed in attracting either men or a more with it up to date uh, hip clientele. Um, so I want to talk about one more restaurant. It is still around today. You can still go to it. Um, uh, it's Chapinese in Berkeley, California, and. I think it's a funny thing to say about a place whose sort of motivating force was, let's just offer fresh local ingredients. But this is a restaurant that set off an avalanche of food trends that I think it's fair to say still reverberate more than 40 years after it started. That's certainly right. And so there are really two things here. One is the impact of Chez Panisse. When I mentioned this project to people who were involved in restaurants or food, and I said I was going to look at 10 restaurants without naming them, people would immediately say, oh, well, Chez Panisse has got to be one of them. Hmm. So I've had some pushback on some of my restaurant choices. No one has ever said, oh, what, what's Chez Panisse doing there? Huh. Uh, you can't have fresh, local, seasonal, cured the whole panoply of the adjectives that we use now for restaurants without Chez Panisse. And what you said is correct, that it's hard to imagine when that was new, when that was a weird innovation. (laughs) Successful innovations always later appear to be natural and to be inevitable. What characterized most American dining, but also supermarkets and what people bought was a different kind of innovation before the 1970s, and that was variety. America was never very good at producing very high quality, and American consumers didn't really demand necessarily that the produce be seasonal, that the meat be as highly flavored and as rich as possible. What they wanted, they were willing to substitute intrinsic quality for variety. So the ice cream might be made in a factory, but it came in 28 flavors. The uh, orange juice might be carted up from Florida in metal trucks, but it comes in, you know, Grove Stand or some pulp or no pulp or calcium added to it. The basic model of the American food industry, and it's not a conspiracy or anything like that. This is what people until recently preferred, is to offer you all kinds of different choices. So it's not just tomato sauce. It's tomato sauce with garlic, with basil, with additional olive oil, uh, with uh, clams. But it's still an industrial product. What's hard for the American food industry to deliver on, but now it's certainly trying just because of the pressure of the model established by Chez Panisse, is freshness, is seasonality, is some kind of close connection with what this thing originally was as a plant or an animal. And that's tough because it's not scalable. What do you think that the role of the restaurant in America is now? Because, it I mean, it's enormous. If you think about food that is not made in the home, 
that's a lot of the food that we eat. I mean, some of the food we might take back to our houses that was made at a restaurant and some food we eat at the restaurant. But when you think about restaurants and culture right now, what, what do you see happening? I guess two things, maybe one good, one bad. The good is that restaurants like Chez Panisse, obviously, but many others have taught us a lot about what's possible, what things can taste like, how to eat better, how to integrate vegetables into your diet as more than just side dishes, for example, or when asparagus is at its best in the place that you live in. On the other hand, and less favorably, the fact is that if you're interested in health, Uh, you should cook your own food. Restaurants are developed, really, their whole purpose is to get you to eat a lot of food. And their success is based on large portions and on uh, food that's flavorful, which includes putting a lot of salt in the food. So generally, if you cook at home, you have more control over how much you're eating and over what you're eating. So the fact that more money is spent on dining out than on groceries, as you said at the opening of the program, is probably not a good thing for Mm. the uh, overall health of the uh, American population. Uh, On the other hand, as I said, the restaurants also show us some ways of eating well, well both in the sense of uh, healthful and well in the sense of enjoyably. Paul Friedman is the author of 10 Restaurants That Changed America. He's also a professor of history at Yale. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this segment. We would love it if you could take a minute to leave a review on iTunes. It'll actually help more people find their way to the show. Think of it as spreading interesting ideas one review at a time.